0: The following recording is a presentation of the Brean Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Roanoke Park area. Now if you would please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. At the end of March when... Government health agencies issued bans against gathering in churches. There was an article that appeared in Time magazine It had a long title. Its title was Christianity offers no answers about the coronavirus. It's not supposed to now, normally such an article wouldn't surprise us because liberal news media like Time magazine, The New York Times and CNN and others are no friends to Christianity. Disparaging Christianity and our values is a significant part of the daily offerings of these news organizations. And when these organizations can use liberal Christians to disparage our faith, you can be sure that these people will be given the most significant and prominent platforms. Well, the man that wrote this article in Time magazine was the notorious N.T. Wright, and he is a New Testament professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. St. Andrews is the third oldest university in the United Kingdom. It rivals Oxford and Cambridge in significance. And N.T. Wright is well known for his belief in open theism. Now, If you don't understand open theism, let me explain. It's the belief that God's knowledge of the future is limited and is conditioned upon what we choose to do. In other words, God doesn't know and God doesn't have any control over what we do in the future. And so it's no surprise that N.T. Wright would say that Christianity offers no answers for the coronavirus because God doesn't know where this outbreak is headed and he has no more control over it than we do. God will find out what happens when we find out. Wright said that God laments that God is sad. Because he doesn't understand what's happening and offers no solution for it. And that's tantamount to saying that life's problems, life's heartaches, life's trials and tribulations are ours to bear alone because God can do nothing about them. And if you think about that for only a few seconds, you can see that if that is true, God has virtually no effect on most events in our lives. Now, we've all heard the saying, I've got problems, you've got problems, all God's children have got problems. And Job said that man is born under trouble as sure as the sparks fly upward. Well, if God has no solution for problems, if he has no answers, then we have no need of him because he offers no comfort. We wouldn't need God because our troubles are unaffected by his existence. But we all know it's true that there is bitterness in life, there are trials, there are heartaches and disappointments. We're troubled and and we long to be released from these shackles of life's problems. What is the solution? Well, I would be an unfaithful pastor and your worst enemy if I said that Christianity offers no solutions for our problems. Now, it's true Christianity will not cure COVID-19, but it will cure the underlying cause. That cause is sin, and God can set us free from sin's effects. Jesus Christ is the answer for the coronavirus, because those who die believing in him will die to live again. And those that die without him have no hope in this life or the life to come. Christianity has the cure for the fear of coronavirus or for any disease or for anything that threatens our lives in any way. David wrote in the 55th Psalm cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Why would David say cast our burdens on the Lord? If God can't do anything about our problems, if God offers no solutions, then why would he have this recorded in his word? If all that God can do is lament for us, if sorrow is God's only recourse, if all God can do is cry with us, why do we need him? We have plenty of friends who can cry with us. Well, I'd like for us to turn now to Matthew chapter five to the Beatitudes. Last month, we... Studied the first beatitude in Matthew five, verse three, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I explained that this beatitude must be the starting place for every person in God's kingdom. It must be established who we are And who God is, it must be recognized that we are destitute, that we are in spiritual bankruptcy. It must be understood there is no good in us. There is nothing in us that God wants. It must be understood that we come into the kingdom depraved and unworthy with nothing that commends us to God. And so we come and we throw ourselves on God and his mercy who alone can give us the credential of righteousness required for life in his kingdom. Now, if we could invent God, we would invent the God of N.T. Right. We would create a God that has no power over us. We would create a God who is helpless unless we consent. We would give life to God rather than him granting life to us. And in fact, this is the God God. ...that all people invent in their minds. They have power over God. They live and do as they please because they answer to no God higher than themselves. And thus they find no help in their deepest need because they have only impotent self to help them. They have no answers for coronavirus or any of life's problems they face. These are people that don't understand and recognize their spiritual bankruptcy... Well, now we come to the second beatitude, which is a a corollary of the first. And so let's begin reading in Matthew five, verse number one. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn. That's the companion of blessed are the poor in spirit. The Beatitudes take their name from the word blessed. This word Beatitude is derived from the Latin beatus, which Indicates a state of happiness, a state of bliss, but the happiness that Jesus intends is not the happiness that most of us think of. We learned this when we studied the first beatitude, that being poor and happy don't seem to be compatible concepts. And so in these beatitudes, Jesus turns conventional thinking upside down. The demands of the beatitudes don't seem to match the blessings. Everything it seems is backwards. Can you be blessed by being poor in spirit? Can you be happy because you mourn? Jesus says that you can. He says that a child of God can, but it must be mourning in the right way and mourning over the right things. Now We think that happiness is achieved by avoiding all pain and suffering. Get rid of our problems, get rid of all of our hardships, and then we'll be happy. And so most don't think that we could be happy and be sad at the same time. But Jesus turns this idea on its head and he spins this around. and he says to be happy at first, you must be sad. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he followed it immediately with blessed are they that mourn. And most of us would say, well, yes, they mourn. They mourn because they're poor. They've lost all their money. Then do will have a way to recover it. And so these two Beatitudes seem to be the perfect epithet for our current financial crisis. We mourn because we've lost the car. We mourn because we can't pay for the boat. We mourn because our house is being foreclosed. Well, Jesus does indeed say they mourn because they're poor, but he means they mourn over their spiritual bankruptcy. This is mourning over their sin. Now, today, we're going to develop this thought just a little further to see what Jesus means by mourning and what it means to be comforted. Now, first, we'll start then with examples of mourning, examples of mourning. There are legitimate reasons to mourn. In 1998, my father passed away. I've never had a truer friend or anyone who had as much impact on my life as my dad. He's been gone 22 years this month, and there's still hardly a day that I don't think of him. And one of the reasons that I think of him is because I spend most of my days either writing sermons or studying for sermons. And there's not a sermon that I write that I don't think. What was my dad's interpretation of this passage? And so I think of my dad when I come and I stand in this pulpit because I really do want to live after his legacy of rightly dividing the word of truth. I mourned when my dad passed away. It's not unusual or unexpected that we would mourn when we lose a loved one. Death is a legitimate reason for mourning. In the Old Testament, Abraham mourned when Sarah, his wife, died. Jacob mourned over the death of Rachel. He mourned when he thought that his beloved son, Joseph, was torn to pieces by wild animals. Jeremiah mourned because Israel wouldn't turn back to God. In fact, he was called the weeping prophet because he cried so much. And one of the prophecies in the Old Testament that he wrote is called Lamentations. Lamentations means a cry of sorrow or grief. And so we have an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated to sorrow and weeping. When Paul had to leave Ephesus, he mourned with the Ephesian elders because he was sorrowful to leave them. These are legitimate reasons for mourning. But this is not what Jesus is speaking of in this passage. Blessed are they that mourn does not mean mourning for death. It doesn't mean mourning for the failure of others. It doesn't mean to mourn because we've been separated from our family and friends as we are in this pandemic. There are nine different words in the scriptures that are translated as sorrow or mourning. And this one that's used here is the most intense of all. This one is the, is the deepest grief. This is the soul-splitting, heart-gripping, gut-wrenching grief that is the worst of all. And do you know what Jesus means is the worst of all? The worst grief of all is when you sorrow, when you realize what a great sinner you are. You see, the, the Beatitudes are a natural progression. These aren't thrown together haphazardly. When a person realizes that he's spiritually bankrupt, that he has nothing to offer God, that in my hand, no price I bring. When he realizes this, when he knows that he is a great sinner, he mourns over that sin. And Jesus says, when you come to this place, when you realize this, this is when you will be blessed. Well, we have some examples in scripture of this kind of mourning. First, I would offer the example of David. David was Mourning for his sin, David is the poster boy. He's the case study in sorrow. He was sorrowful because of rejection. His son, Absalom, tried to take the kingdom from him in a failed coup. There was sorrow because of an incestuous rape in his family. His son, Amnon, raped his half sister, Tamar. And because of this rape, Absalom killed Amnon. And so there was murder in David's family. We've just read the 51st Psalm. It's a psalm of mourning. There was sorrow because David's first baby with Bathsheba died. But of all the sorrows that David experienced, none was as great as the sorrow over personal sin. David was a man with a contrite heart. He realized when he sinned and he understood how horrible his offenses were against God. And that's what's reflected in the 51st Psalm. Now well, David could have. He could have spent his entire life in depression because of sin, but he didn't. He realized his sin and he confessed it. And it was when he began to mourn over his sin that he became beatus, that is, blessed. The world tells us to hide our sins, and at first that's what David did, and it led him into more sin. The world tells us to ignore our sins. Don't really worry about sin. Smile through your sins. But Jesus says just the opposite. His advice, no, his demand is that we confess our sins and mourn over them. Realize the seriousness of them. Grieve because of them. Because only then will you do something about them. And do you realize how this is the opposite of preaching today? This is not what the church tells us to do today. The popular churches are the ones that where they don't mention sin. It's churches that never call people to repentance. It's churches that mimic the world and all of its vices and good times. And so the popular TV evangelist smiles. He ignores sins and he says people are so depressed today. We, we want to give them something positive. I don't want to preach about sin because I don't want people to feel bad. And true to their teaching, you never find anyone in their services that weeps over their sin. You don't find contrition. You don't find sorrow. And thus you don't find holiness And godliness, because as we've just read in the 51st Psalm, that's what it takes to get to holiness and godliness. It takes contrition over sin, repentance from sin. And when there is no preaching about sin, who will be concerned enough to weep about it? They will never believe that conviction and sorrowful mourning over sin is the pathway to joy. But what does Christ teach about it? Does he want you to feel good? No, Christ wants you to feel bad before you can come to him. He wants you to agonize. He wants you to be so miserable that you're sick of sin from head to toe. He wants you to lay awake at night with sweat, soaking the bed and tossing and turning because you can't stand yourself. But how many people think of sin that way? How many? Go to bed at night and they rehearse all the evil that they've done all day long and they can't get a minute's rest. I wonder how people in church, Christians in church, how do they sin? How do they live their lives in filth? And they do that day after day without even a hint of godly sorrow. And truly, I think I know the answer to that. I think the answer is they don't really know Christ. And thus, they aren't concerned about what sin is does to him, not just to them. But who is the happiest person? Well, this is the person who was on his way to hell, but the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin. He couldn't stand himself because of sin. And so he repented and he received forgiveness of his sins. I mean, who is happier than the person who has been convicted of a sinful, hell bound life and then received forgiveness and a change of direction? But when sin isn't preached and when the preacher is afraid to confront the wickedness of sinners as Jesus and John the Baptist did, if they're afraid to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then how will people know what they need and how they can have forgiveness? Happiness without contrition of sin, without forgiveness of it is fake happiness. We might even call that showboat happiness because it fades away into the ruination of a devil's hell. And then we'll see who's happy. So a gospel that leaves people wallowing in their sin. That leaves them just as they are. Leaves them happy with their ungodly lives. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, You may think as you hear this. In, in these troubling times that we're living in. You may think, Pastor Smith, that just, that's just too hard. I don't want to go to church if that's what you're going to preach. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to go to church to mourn. And you don't realize that you've missed the introduction to Jesus' most powerful sermon. This is the way he starts. This is the way he starts a sermon. You won't be happy until you mourn for sin. Not until you're sad will you be happy. And that's when you receive the everlasting forgiveness of sin. Well, there's another type of. Or a great example of this type of mourning in scripture, this is the Apostle Paul mourning for his service. Sin affected his service and he mourned about this. Listen to his uh, letter. This is part of his letter to the Roman church. in Romans chapter 7, verse number 22, he, he writes, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. O oh, wretched man that I am. That is Paul mourning for sin and what sin did to his service. Now, there are some who interpret the passage that Paul was speaking of what he was before he became a Christian. And so they think that that when Paul got saved, that the struggles he had with sin were over. But that's wrong here in chapter seven of Romans. Paul was. Already converted. But there was this struggle with this sinful nature that would go on throughout his entire life. He would never be free from it. And if you go on and you read Romans chapter 8 correctly, you see that. Because he says in the 8th chapter, verses 22 and 23. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together unto now. Verse 23. And not only they... But ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. He means those of us that are saved, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. And so, do you see this groaning and travailing in pain? That is mourning, that's sorrow for sin, and how sin affects our service to God. Now, Paul knew that. Yielding to sin prevents fellowship with Christ. He was a saved man and he groaned. He travailed as a woman would experiencing terrible birth pangs. He mourned because he wasn't yet released from the body of sin. Why don't we see Christians doing this? When do we say I gave in to a temptation and now I agonize because of it? We don't see it anymore because Christians are used to sin. We've done it so much. We've lived this way so long. We're hardened to sin and it doesn't bother us anymore. One person said it so well. We're used to the dark. We've been called into the glorious light of the gospel. But once again, we have become used to the dark. It's like when you go into a darkened room. At first, you don't see very well. But if you're there long enough, your eyes adjust to it. And that's where we are We've thought the wrong way. We've talked the wrong way. We've read the wrong things. We've watched the wrong things and we've done it so long. We're just used to it now. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn. He speaks of sin. And when you're used to sin, you don't mourn. You laugh about it. You flirt with it. And so what do we have? We have Christians that never serve. We have Christians that stay away from church, Christians that miss services when we can be here. And folks, that is sin to be mourned and repented of. Where are the mourners? They're hard to find. And thus, our churches aren't blessed. Our country isn't blessed. Our lives are not blessed because we have forgotten what it means to mourn over sin. And that leads me to a third example. This one is a little bit different. And this is Jesus, Jesus mourning for sinners. Jesus never mourned for his own sin because he didn't have any, but instead he mourned over sinners. One day he stood overlooking the city of Jerusalem. He saw the sin of their rejection of him and he wept for them and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets! And stone is them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children to gather even as a hen, gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Jesus mourned for sinners, and there wasn't anyone as uniquely qualified as Jesus to mourn because of sinners. And why? Well, because he's the only one who truly knows who truly knows how God feels about sin. We're not capable of knowing that in its entirety. Only Jesus fully understands the consequences of sin. He has seen the eternal results of sin. He prepared a place to receive sinners. And so he knows what it will be like when they go there. Jesus knows all about hell. He created hell. And just so you can be sure that when he stood there weeping and mourning over Jerusalem, he knew where they were going. And his tears were the deepest sorrow of all. We don't know the depths of hell. We haven't seen it. We can't see it. We don't understand how awful the rejection of Christ's salvation is. Only Jesus truly knows this. But it ought to tell you something. Did you know there's no place in the Bible that says Jesus laughed? Churches are having a good time. People are laughing. You know, a service really isn't good, people think, unless there's a a belly laugh somewhere in the sermon. Most people won't go to hear a preacher who's deadly serious. People have invented a wisecracking Jesus, a mover, a shaker. He just loves you so much. He doesn't really care about your sin. He's not going to judge your lifestyle. He wants you to be respected for who you are. And so he believes in equal rights for all. You can be adulterous. You can be homosexual. You can support abortion. Do all of that if you like, because he's not concerned about anything but loving you into heaven. Oh, Isaiah had a much different view of him In Isaiah. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Isaiah 53. He has such deep concern that he doesn't crack a smile about sin. He doesn't kid about divorce. He doesn't joke about infidelity. He's not jovial about drugs and alcohol. He weeps. He mourns while we sit in church waiting for the next funny story. The Apostle James wrote James, chapter four, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands. ye sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. What is that? That is conviction of sin. There's a time to stop laughing and to get serious about mourning for sin. There's a time to weep for sin and for sinners. Jesus wept for them because he knew hell was waiting It had its mouth wide open to receive them. Jesus was a man of sorrows. And we must be men of sorrows. And weep over those that are going to hell as Jesus wept. Now here's a great question for all of us, I, I think. Do we see, do we understand what's coming? Your mom, your dad, your friends, your husband, your wife... Your brothers and sisters, your co-workers, they are going to hell without Jesus. Weep for them. Mourn for sinners. This is serious business. We must be sad to be happy. We must mourn for sinners because we can't be joyful until they receive Christ. Mourning must come first. So these are examples of what Jesus means. This is not sorrow over lost possessions. This isn't sorrow because the stock market lost 20% of its value. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are those who know what sin did to them. And they mourn because they have offended the holy God. Now, as we move on, there are people who believe... They should be excused from mourning. This is the second area of discussion today. Excuses from mourning. The world thinks that sadness cannot be an ingredient for happiness. That's convoluted. It's all mixed up. So I must be excused from sadness. And so they offer their excuses. What do they say? Why should they be excused? Well, they make their own excuses and they say, first, I I could be worse. Here's my excuse. I could be worse. I can be worse than I am. I'm not really all that bad. There are worse things that I can do. I mean, look at that person over there. Do you see what that person is doing? I don't do that. I could be a lot worse than I am. And so they compare themselves to others. I don't mourn for my sin. I'm just simply happy. I'm not worse than I am. Listen to what Paul said about this second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Why would you do this? Why would you compare yourself to others? How does that benefit you? Now, the Sermon on the Mount is not about the world standards and what they live by. This is Christ's kingdom. These are statements for an everlasting kingdom. And so the comparison is not me to you or you to me. The comparison is me to Christ and you to Christ. One sin, any sin is an offense against the Holy God. And Christ died for sin. It was sin that put nails into his hands and feet. And so that lust that you feel when you watch pornography that put nail into Christ's body, your affair at work that put nails into his hands. The dirty story that's told the little reefer that smoked put spikes into his feet. What are you doing? What are you doing? Saying I'm not so bad. I, I could be worse. Now, those excuses will keep you from sorrow, from mourning and weeping because of sin. These excuses don't comfort anyone. They condemn. Then another excuse. I can't do better. I just can't help myself. I must do this. I must have this affair because I love this person so much. I can't help it. And did you know that is an excuse that limits God? You're saying that God isn't big enough to help. In the beginning, of the message uh, As as I said there, you would join into right into right saying that God has no answers because God can't help. You say that God is unable to conquer my sins, and that would be true of any sin in which you in which you practice. But did you know that's rejection of God's grace? Jesus spoke directly to Paul and said, my grace is sufficient for you. And you say, no, no, Jesus, that is not right I can't do better because your grace isn't enough. Well, here's the problem. You won't mourn for sin if you stand outside of God's grace. Despair can turn into sin. Anxiety can turn into sin. When we reject God's help, we can't be worried and afraid unless we don't trust God. Trust in God brings relief see, when you're worried about the economy and you stay up late at night, afraid of what's going to happen, it's not because you're tossing and turning over sin. You toss and turn because you don't believe God. And that is certainly a result of sin. You're anxious because you rely on self to solve problems. Do you think that Christianity has no answers for coronavirus and the economy? I promise you, if you're sad for your sins instead of sad for your suffering... Christ will turn sorrows into joy. Just go back and think about your salvation. The most helpless position you've been in is when you were lost in your sins. You remember what I said about the first beatitude when we studied that? The worst thing that can happen to anybody is they die and they go to hell. Nothing comes within a billion miles of being worse than that. Now, if you sorrow over sin so that you ask Christ for forgiveness... And what makes you think that he can't deliver you from all the lesser things that you experience? If he can save your soul from eternity in hell, can't he deliver you from everything that you encounter? This is exactly what Romans says in Romans eight thirty two. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I can't do better. Is not an excuse and then a third excuse i'll wait a little bit longer i'll i'll deal with this later i won't be too concerned about my sins right now i'll deal with it later but do you know what that's like it's like being diagnosed with cancer and saying i don't need help right now the cancer's in its early form it's not all that bad when it gets a little bit worse i'll deal with it i don't know anybody in their right mind that would deal with cancer that way if you've got cancer, the earliest you deal with it and treat it, the better your chance of survival. Sin is much worse than cancer. And the earliest moment that you treat it, the better is your chance of survival. Sin moves fast. When you get infected with sin, it gets into your mind. And the longer that you stay in sin, the less concerned you become about it. Well, Barney Fife used to say, nip it in the bud. That's what you do with sin. Sin. When you break God's law, you get sorrowful. You get on with mourning. When you get in your mind that sin is a killer, then you're none too happy when you've got it. Imagine a person coming home from the doctor and has a smile on his face and says, hey, guess what? I've got cancer. You're not going to do that. You're somber. You're sullen until that's dealt with. Only when it's conquered do you smile. Sin is the same. Get sorrowful over it. Deal with it. Then the smile comes with the forgiveness. Now, thirdly, thirdly is encouragement from mourning. Jesus said, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. There are examples of mourning. There are excuses, but then there's also encouragement. And we don't want to forget this last part of the verse. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The encouragement is the comfort When you mourn for sin, when you realize the deep poverty of your soul because of sin and you mourn for it, with that deep contrition, you'll be led to repentance and faith. And then next comes comfort. But what is your encouragement? What is the comfort? Well, I think we would say first that there is comfort about sin's penalty. You are delivered from sin's penalty. Now, if you know about sin and you understand the consequences of it, and yet there isn't any deliverance, then there would be no comfort. If Christ can't deliver you from the penalty, then there would be nothing but sadness forever. Would he say blessed are the sad, sad, sad because they will never be comforted? That makes no sense at all. That's the N.T. Wright interpretation. God has no answer, so God can't comfort The penalty of sin is the fires of hell. And unless Christ is enough to stand between you and the penalty between you and hell, there is no joy. But thank God, because of Christ, you are accepted in the beloved. You are righteous with God. And Christ is the only way you will ever be righteous with God. The bankrupt spirit mourns over sin. It has sorrow turned into gladness because the soul, the soul is pardoned through faith. That penalty is erased because Christ took sin's penalty for you. Sin has only one remedy faith in Jesus Christ. And when your sins are forgiven, sorrow is turned into gladness. Next, there is comfort about sin's power. With Christ, sin has no power. Without Christ, it's impossible to overcome sin. An unbeliever. Will always be defeated by sin. There is no self power that can deliver from sin's power. So poor in spirit, that is recognition. We are helpless against sin's power. That's the source of hopeless sorrow. If you're going to weep for anything, weep because you have no way to be delivered from sin's power. It has you in a death roll, you're in its grip, you can't get out. But comfort comes. When you know, as Paul said, sin shall not have dominion over you. When you're lost, you're in Satan's kingdom. You're in the kingdom of this world. You are under sin. You are in Satan's dominion. But when you trust Christ, the power of Satan is broken. Just as Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Christ breaks the power of sin. He sets you free from the bondage of Satan. He gives you power to live unto God. Mourn for sin because there's comfort when its power is broken by Christ. Thirdly, there is comfort about sin's presence. Every believer mourns because sin is present in his body. Now, our example we read a moment ago is when Paul cried out, "O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And the answer to his question is Christ will deliver us from the body of this death. Christ will deliver us from sin because this body will die. This body will go into the grave. Our soul then will ascend to God, unshackled from this body of sin. And then one day this body will be changed. It will be raised from the grave, incorruptible, made new, glorified like the body of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter three, for our conversation is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. In first Thessalonians, he also spoke of the appearing of Christ. He said, Jesus is coming back. And then he said, wherefore, comfort. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Do you see how morning is blessed? Do you see how being sad Becomes joy. Do you see how sorrow is really happiness? When you mourn for sin. When your deep poverty causes you to mourn. Then and only then do you receive forgiveness of sin. There is no joy that surpasses knowing that you are free from sin's penalty. Free from sin's power. And you will be free from sin's presence. Well let me close with this thought. Meditating on scripture. Will make you mourn for sin. People, those of you who are members of our church, you know what we believe about the word of God. So you know that I can't leave this out. We make it a point to read scripture in our church and to read plenty of scripture, I hope. Where do you learn about sin and evil? Where do you learn about salvation and eternity? Where do you learn about who you are and who God is? How do we know all of this? Well, despite what N.T. Wright says, the word of God has the answers. I could tell you none of this except God revealed this in his word. One commentator wrote a deep doctrine of sin, a high doctrine of joy, and the two together produce this blessed Happy man who mourns and who at the same time is comforted. The way to experience that, obviously, is to read the scriptures, to study and meditate upon them, to pray to God for his spirit to reveal sin in us to ourselves and then to reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ in all his fullness. Oh, well, this is what we say go to God. You want answers? Go to Christianity. Go to Jesus Christ. Go to the Bible. The answers about the coronavirus are there and they're expected to be there because Christianity is the true worship of the almighty God. Blessed are they that mourn for they shall be comforted. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We thank you, Lord, for this word that we've read today. So important that we know who Jesus is and know who we are, that we understand sin and that we need forgiveness of our sins. We must have our hearts regenerated. We must repent of our sins. We must confess. We must come to Jesus Christ in faith and be saved from the awful consequences of sin. Lord, I pray that people will hear the message today and realize. There is no hope without Jesus Christ. I pray especially for members of our church that flirt with sin and don't seem to be too concerned about sin in their lives, not too much concerned about holiness. Thank the Lord. Thank you, Lord. We don't have many of those, I don't think. But there are some and there are some who neglect the church. There's some who are not faithful to church. Some are not all that sad that we can't meet in church. And we wonder why that is. And the only conclusion that we can come to is they're happy in sin. And we know, Lord, they can't truly be happy that way. So we ask, Lord, for your conviction of their hearts. Help them to understand that we must come to Jesus Christ, confess those sins in order to have fellowship with him again. Bless our people. Bless our church, Lord. Bless those who listen who aren't members and need Jesus Christ as Savior. We just ask you, Lord, you'd speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.